Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We are working right now very hard at the Flow Research Collective on mapping the neural dynamics, so the network level brain activity of flow state onset. So basically what's going on in the brain, network level, at the, during the first two seconds of flow as you drop into the state. And we are looking at a bunch of different scenarios, but one of the things that's overwhelmingly clear is that context has a huge impact. Goal-directedness and context has a huge impact very early in, in the information processing perspective, like at a filtering level, literally at the level of filtering attention and helping motor action selection. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Steven, welcome back to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. Um, I have always been a huge fan of your work. It's had a profound impact on me. I've been the beneficiary of attending your Zero to Dangerous workshop, which even after having read your books and reading Cal Newport's books, I thought, wow, this was incredible in terms of value and, and you know, tactical insight. Um, but as you know, from having spoken to me before, I don't like to start by talking about your work, but I do want to start by asking you a question, which I think is relevant. And I know part of the answer to this question from having read your book. And that is, uh, what birth order were you, uh, and what impact did that end up having on the direction that your life has taken? Um, that's interesting. Uh, that's a weird ass question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> I'm the oldest and I, um, in terms of uh, standard birth order psychology, I follow none of the traditional uh, birth order patterns. So I will say that, like, I've read the relevant literature here, and I don't, I don't tend to follow most of the patterns you see in firstborns who tend to tend. The firstborns tend to be people pleasers. They tend to, uh, they it's a it's an evolutionary survival thing. They tend to uh, actually end up um, sort of doing everything their parents want. <laughs> I was the exact opposite. <laughs> I did nothing. I remember from our wanted. last conversation. Yeah. I was I was hell as a child. Uh, my sixth grade teacher told me I wasn't going to live to see thirty, and she wasn't <laughs> wrong in her predictions. I did send her a postcard when I turned thirty. 
said you were wrong, but that's besides the point. Um, mm-hmm. I do like to win. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know what uh, what impact it had on me. The only thing I could say here is um, my folks had me when they were young and there wasn't a whole lot of money. And my mother had really no idea, I don't think, in, in truth, how to raise a child. And uh, they moved very quickly. We were, I was born in Chicago, but we moved to Cleveland very early on. And my mother knew nobody there. So in not knowing, like having no sort of network around her, not really knowing what she was doing as a mom, what she ended up doing was she knew books were good. So I, I had less of a childhood and more of a, you know, massive adventure in reading. We would go to the library and, and, and take home 100, 150 books and read them together. And like that yeah. was, that was so, that was, you, you know, a may go mom, right? Um, amazing, uh, amazing the impact that had on me. So I, you know, I wanted to be a writer from a very early age and that was part of as a result of that. And I also think the other thing that my parents uh, were great about is, um, and this really like, again, not knowing what to do, somewhere along the line, they decided curiosity was good. And so anything I was deeply curious about, even though there wasn't a whole lot of money, they would go out of their way to try to make available to me in some way, shape or form. Well, I mean, part of the reason I started with that question in particular was because I know one of the stories you tell in the book is about your brother and the magic tricks. And I was wondering um, if you could expand on that for us, because I, I think that, you know, I'd heard you reference this in a previous interview, I think with Chase Jarvis, but beyond that, I had, you know, I don't think you and I had ever talked about that. That's why I thought, you know, this is interesting. So there. tell me about so, that. Um, I, uh, my brother went to a friend's house. He was, uh, I was, <laughs> I think I was nine at the time he comes home and he like produces a bright red spun ball puts it in his other hand and it disappears right makes vanishing spun ball magic prestidigitation close-up magic 101 but i had never seen magic before and it um it looked what i was looking at looked impossible right a ball my my baby brother just made a ball disappear i also knew you know, my brother wasn't magic. So like there had to be a thing that he did and I wanted to know how to do it more than I wanted to sort of anything at that point. And I fell into professional magic, which I did essentially until I got to college and was very successful, made it, made a lot of money as a magician, um, the birthday parties and, and, and bar mitzvahs and things like that. And, uh, um, was pretty good. And the thing about magic that was super influential in me and the, and the reason it matters so much to the, to what happens later in my life is one magic, literally the stuff, the really high quality magic looks like magic. It looks impossible. Even if you know what the people are doing at an expert level, it looks impossible. And I learned very early that impossible always has a skill set. There's always a thing that's behind the impossible that, you know, and whether or not this is true everywhere, this idea stayed with me. So later on in my career as a journalist, when I started encountering so-called impossible feats, athletes doing stuff that had never been done before in history and wasn't supposed to be able to be done or technologists turning science fiction ideas into science fact technology or business leaders building impossible business empires in near record time. Wherever I saw it, 
rather than saying, oh, this is, there's something going on here that I can't understand. I went, well, what's the skill set? What's the process? And as I advanced in, in, in my work, that became more and more, what's the neurobiology underneath everything else? Because that seemed to be the foundational mechanism that was leading to all this sort of impossible performance. So that's the story. Yeah. Wow. So what, what's been the difference um, in the trajectory of your brother's life and your life, given the experience that you both had growing up? Uh, I have two brothers and both are um, absurdly successful as well. Um, so uh, whatever else is true, um, my parents raised us right. Wow. So, I mean, the thing that I think really strikes me about this is that you had this sort of insatiable curiosity that you were captivated by uh, so early in your life. And it seems like you followed it to the end of the earth or in your case, the top of the mountain. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking uh, an old friend got back in touch recently and I, I, I haven't talked to her since West of Jesus. And she was uh, very involved in uh, the campaign I, I ran for West of Jesus. And there's an idea in West of Jesus, my second book, written a very long time ago, where I'm talking about flow science. And I say, you know, and my curiosity about flow science. And I said, you know, the thing about me is I'm a guy who can follow an idea right off the edge of the world. And I think, being that it's 20 years later, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, why is it that you think some people recognize that or, or find it early in their life. And then there are people who, who don't find it at all. They kind of just, you know, go through life without ever experiencing, you know, what you call impossible or these sort of extraordinary achievements. Well, um, there's a lot of different answers to this. Uh, to <laughs> me, to me, it, it, it starts with a couple of things. The 30 years studying the neurobiology of peak human performance has taught me kind of one or two major lessons. The first is that we are all capable of so much more than we know. The second is most of us don't know this because human potential, human capability is invisible, especially to ourselves. And this is, this is very foundationally true at two different levels that, and both sort of matter here. Level one is um, we only find out what we're capable of by stretching our skills to the utmost again and again and again and again. And if that becomes how you approach everything you do, every time, you know, I'm a skier, every time I go skiing, I'm trying to do things I've never done before. Just a little bit, but just same thing every time I go into a book as a writer, that's what I'm trying to do. Just stretch beyond what I thought I was capable of. Just a little bit, just a tiny little bit. Um, but if you do that over and over and over and over and over and over again for years on end, you end up accomplishing incredible things. Yeah. More well, specifically, I mean, I think, sorry, hold on, there's ahead. a second half to this because it's also, it, this is weird. And this isn't my research. This is Adam Grant predominantly, but a lot of other people have contributed to it. We actually don't know what activities we are going to be good at or like until after we've done them. And this is true even in closely related skill sets. So the example that was given to me is you could go to LeBron James. Hypothetically, let's say LeBron James has never played badminton, okay? And you say, LeBron, do you think you'd like badminton? Do you think you'd be good at badminton? Now, whatever else LeBron James is or is in the world, he is certainly an expert in using his body 
and knowing how to use his body and knowing how he can use his body. And yet what the research shows is he can't tell you if he's going to like or be good at badminton until he tries it and starts to get good. So not only do we know, not know what we're capable until we stretch our skills to the utmost, we don't actually know what we're going to like and or be good at until after we've given it a, a shot. So one of the foundational answers to your question, I'm backing into your answer because it's actually a cool answer, but it's hard to grok until you understand that other stuff, is we started this conversation with curiosity. Turns out that anxiety and curiosity are essentially opposite sides of the same neurobiological signal. So one of the reasons I think most people have trouble finding out, you have to ride your curiosity as a foundational motivator. You have to ride it into a lot of these sort of impossible quests, right? Nobody's ever, nobody that I've studied sort of set out to do capital I impossible, that which has never been done. They set out to do small I impossible, that which I thought was impossible for me. And by sort of going after small I impossible, after small I impossible, after small I impossible, eventually this capital I impossible, that which has never been done, is sort of what's next. But often from the inside, and I can give you an example of this if you want, uh, the view is really different. Like it doesn't look like most of the people we talk to them about like the moments they accomplished the impossible, they didn't think of it that way. They were just doing the next thing that was in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to come back to to examples of this, but I think this is a really perfect jump off point for one of the things you opened the book with. And I think that this resonated with me um, because I've been thinking a lot about the role that context plays and how often people ignore it in any sort of self-improvement effort. You say that personality doesn't scale, biology scales. What we mean is in the field of peak performance, too often someone figure out figures out what works for them and then assumes it will work for others. And it rarely does. You know, I know that, you know, I've been to your seminars where you're incredibly skeptical about people in positions of authority, some of who have even been guests here on the show, who don't back up the things they say with any real science and use themselves as the only sample size. And the reason that quote in particular struck me is because I, I, you know, one, I just finished writing this uh, article titled Why Outliers Are Bad Role Models for Most of Us, uh, because to your point, we overlook all these other factors that are out of our control. So I wonder, you know, one, why is it that you get this sort of vicious cycle of personal development where people just basically keep going to seminar after seminar, but nothing changes? And what is the role of genetics in accomplishing impossible goals? So, um, you want to know why people get stuck forever, A, and B, you want to know the role of genetics. So, let's back up. And start with genetics because it's probably easier. These are not, you're not asking me particularly easy questions, but uh, I appreciate that. So when I, I say pers- personality doesn't scale, what I mean is there are foundational, the reason you can't figure out what, you know, I can't to figure out what works for me. And I, let, let me, do you mind if I tell this is, so I learned this lesson the hard way. And the way I learned it the hard way was this. I did not have, um, a normal childhood by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, the, let's say there was a lot of high risk situations in my childhood. And I, when I became a journalist, I spent most of my time covering action adventure sport athletes and uh, field biologists and uh, would do other sort of dangerous assignments in between those things. And the people I was covering 
loved risk and took huge risks for a living. Um, and in action sports at the professional level, if you're literally not nearly dying once a month, you're not doing your job. As a journalist, almost every journalist I knew would have a near-death experience of some kind or other once every three months. It was really common, this level of incredibly dangerous you know, situations. When I was a journalist on five separate occasions, I had a guns, you know, pointed in my face. One time I had a gun shoved into my mouth. I mean, like this was just cost to do in business in this world. And I thought it was normal. I didn't realize, I didn't know anybody outside of the people who were journalists and action sport athletes or working on the cutting edge of whatever. Like everybody I knew was doing dangerous shit. Even the inventors I knew, like I knew some of the early guys who were working on the first flying cars. And trust me, when you have to invent a flying car, you have to build a contraption and then take it to an airport and hopefully hope it doesn't crash, right? So like everybody (laughs) I knew, right? Um, I like, I'm thinking so much of the guy named Desir Bulnar who invented the world's first flying motorcycle. And when he met my wife, he was going to... Nevada, he was going to the desert outside of Vegas to test this flying, that literally the flying motorcycle was going to take it off and see if it flew for the first time. And my, he did, my wife had no idea what he was going to Nevada for. And she said, so you like to gamble? He said, I love to gamble. And my wife said, well, what's your game? He said, I don't have a game. There's only one game. It's called you bet your life. That's the only game in town. <laughs> and I remember that so clearly. He wasn't, you know what I mean? And so like that was just normal. And what happened is I learned a bunch about flow right around the time I wrote my first big book on flow, um, which was West of Jesus. And right after that book, I had a column in Psychology Today right on their blog. They had just launched their blog. It was a big deal. And I had a column there at a blog. And I was an expert in peak performance as far as a lot of people were concerned, especially my friends. And like, you know, anything else, I'm, I just did what other friends want to do. You see your friends having trouble, you give advice or they ask you for advice. And people thought my advice was good because fuck, I'd written a book about it and people thought I was smart. <laughs> I had and I literally like, I, I there were probably 10 people in that first test sample who took my advice and like none of it, it worked for nobody. But I mean, I put Two people in the hospital, I kid you not. I nearly <laughs> caused a divorce. One of those friends still hasn't talked to me. It's 20 years later and she's still pissed um, for wow. the damage I did. Another friend, one of my closest friends, didn't talk to me for five years. Like I did damage, damage, damage. And the reason is risk tolerances are genetic, right? They're set up by how, how active or inactive are your dopamine receptors plus shaped by early childhood into early adulthood experience, but they're locked into place. And later adulthood, you can only get at them through like 10 years of work. Like you can train, change these traits, but it takes a very long time and it's a slow process. So when I teach you what works for me, well, if you are really, really, really risk friendly and, you know, line up with where I am on other genetic things like, or genetic early childhood experience, things like where am I on the openness to experience scale? Where am I on the introversion, extroversion scale, right? All this stuff, genetic or early childhood experience. I can't train you using what works for me unless you are exactly like me in a broad stretch of personality traits that may or may not line up. It's not useful. If you want something that's going to work for everybody, you've got to go one layer deep into the kind of the mechanistic neurobiology that was created by evolution to work for all mammals 
included humans. You get down to that level, that is shared. That's what works for everybody. Personality doesn't scale, biology scale. So that was your first question. Second question? Yeah. So, I mean, with that being in mind, you know, I mean, if you look at the entire personal development industry from, you know, the Tony Robbins of the world to like the seduction community over and over, what you see is, you know, a package formula that people try to apply to their lives. I mean, hell, it happens even in the online marketing space. It's like, here's everything I did to grow a podcast. If you follow my recipe, then you will be able to grow a podcast too. Leaving out, keep in mind, all the context of my email list is bigger or I got a 10-year head start in a trend, which is my case, which is one of the reasons I've been very reluctant to ever teach a course on podcasting. So two things about this. like One, why does that happen? Why do people overlook context? And um, why is it that the people who are actually teaching this stuff don't acknowledge the fact that context plays such an important role? So... God, it's so interesting that you bring that up. So we are working on, uh, like, I, I want to take it to a deeper level than you know, because it's context is super important in that we are working right now very hard at the Flow Research Collective on mapping the neural dynamics, so the network-level brain activity of flow state onset. So basically what's going on in the brain, network level, at the during the first two seconds of flow as you drop into the state. And... We are looking at a bunch of different scenarios, but one of the things that's overwhelmingly clear is that context has a huge impact. Goal-directedness and context has a huge impact very early in in the information processing perspective, like at a filtering level, literally at the level of filtering attention and helping motor action selection. So it's really an interesting question from a geeky standpoint. Um what I think is this to make, make, take it back to reality, which is Nietzsche, Freud, Jung, everybody sort of who worked in psychology and human performance up until the humanistic psychologists show up with Abraham Maslow and Adler and those guys in the 30s and 40s. There's a couple of great women in there as well. But up to that point, all of them were in agreement that if you're interested in peak performance, you got to get out from under the thumb of mommy and culture because mommy and culture weigh a lot and they will block peak performance. In other words, you have to become an individual and um, sh- shake off your culture um, to achieve peak performance. And that is another sort of side of this context debate that isn't talked about as much. And I don't know, um, you know, the, the thing about, um, why people get derailed and why they go to endless people more seminars and seminars and seminars as far as I can tell there is, I mean, there are a number of differentiators and now we can talk about what I've discovered in the book, but if you, you want to back it up to something early on, I actually think there's two things going on. I think one, there is a pervasive idea in the self-help, especially on the spiritual side of the self-help community, and possibly in a lot of the psychology community, that you have to fix the broken in you before you can start working towards peak performance, before you can start going after impossible goals, whether those things are things that you think are impossible for you or just things that are impossible in the world, like you want to heal, you know, and poverty or something like that. Um, yeah. 
And that is not true, right? Like what I have seen over and over and over again is that the people at the top of any field are running from something just as fast as they're running towards something, right? Um, And ever, I was talking about this. So I was on a, I was doing an event three days ago, Chris Davenport, who helped pioneer skiing and big mountain skiing, one of the most early big so-called extreme skiers, uh, Rebecca Roush, the so-called queen of pain. Nobody's won more endurance races and bike races than she has, um, was on the call. And so was Chris Malloy, who helped pioneer big wave surfing in Hawaii. Um, and we were all talking about this very thing on how their sports became the place that they sort of ran to and how they, you know, started rebuilding the rest of their lives. It was through kind of pushing their performance in these one activities. I think that was the same for me in writing. I think that's the same yeah. for everybody. So I think it's a, there's a miss. I th- so I think what happens when you see people doing the endless circuit, right, is it hurts inside. And they think that that is standing in the way in between them and their dreams. They fail to appreciate two things that are, three things that are key. One, everybody starts there. It hurts inside everybody. Two. What everybody in peak performance will tell you is that whatever your Achilles heels are, whatever your biggest defects are, those are also your superpowers and they will become your superpowers over time. And I think the real thing is this, and I think this is, this is the thing that is so awful and so true and yet so dumb. The secret to peak performance is literally getting up every day doing a handful of things every day and pushing a little harder than you're normally comfortable with every day, all the time. Six or seven things, you're right. It's it's every day, repeat, repeat, repeat. There's no secret, secret. People don't believe that hard work works. And they don't believe they're capable of the hard work either, right? And they're wrong. They're, of course, capable of the hard work, A, and B, hard work works. And once you figure that out, everything changes. And I will tell you where most people tend to figure that out when they're late starters is fitness, (laughs) right? I mean, like it took me, when I started lifting weights, I was in high school. I weighed 119 pounds when I graduated my high school and I was my height, which is 5'10". I, you know, had to get that up to like 160 pounds uh, through weightlifting and it took a decade. But that was the weight I needed to be at to be able to perform as, as, as like the athlete I wanted to be. And it took a decade and it was awful, right? I was so, I remember five years into weightlifting, I was in a gym in San Francisco and a, and a big muscly guy walked up to me and looked at me and went, hey kids, stick with it. You'll get there sooner or later. I was five years in. Yeah. Um, so, you know what I mean? I think people eventually learn those lessons through fitness um, and maybe they don't want to believe that everything works that way, but it just works that way. And the sooner you figure that out, the easier everything gets. If you understand that there's n- hard work works and that your life is going to be nothing more or less than you make of it, that sort of like those realizations as like flat truce sort of really mm-hmm. are helpful. Well, it's funny you say that because for me, I mean, I just can't help but think about, you know, sort of pre and post surfing, you know, pre surfing, I was the guy who'd been fired from every job. And then, you know, I start surfing. And to your point, like surfing creates this ripple effect in every area of my life where I get up at six in the morning, that just becomes my new normal. I don't drink as much as I used to. Um, 
and you know i'm able to to write i didn't even know what flow was i think i just knew that i liked how i felt when i get out of the water so it, yeah um, and it, 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 it's interesting because i don't even know i mean the flow is a big deal there right the fact that surfing is packed with flow triggers will produce yeah. flow but the other thing that's almost the bigger deal so if you talk about the art of impossible right there's a section the, the book opens with the motivation section and talks about aligning all your intrinsic motivators starting with curiosity through passion purpose autonomy and finally mastery what's interesting is in the, you have to do that you have to they all all those motivators have to point in the same direction so it's an onboarding process but if you go into the relevant literature you will often find that mastery seems to be the uber dominant motivator and when people, and the reason, in a sense, is the 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 way um, oh, this was explained by in Drive by Dan Pink, basically said that you know the most addictive high is uh, steady progress towards meaningful goals, and mm-hmm. um, meaningful goals and steady progress basically means you're challenging yourself slightly and rising to that challenge or at least attempting to rise to the challenge and here's the other thing that people don't understand about when i talk about the hard work works people think i'm talking about outcome so let me explain it this way i am 53 years old i'm skiing better than i've ever skied before in my life this season um and i am pushing harder skiing bigger gnarlier stuff than i've ever skied and doing crazier tricks in the park than i've ever done before But none of that matters. When I show up, all that matters is that I show up and put the time in. Everything else is gravy. I show up, I push hard. Maybe I have a great day and I have breakthroughs. Maybe I have a terrible day. It does how I feel, the experience, the quality of it does not matter. All that matters is you show up and you push a little harder. That's all that matters when it comes to peak performance. So it's not like, you don't have to care about the results. You just have to care about the thing, the one thing you can control, which is do you show up? Do you push a little harder than, than maybe you, you wanted to, whether this is work or play? It's funny because, you know, like despite finishing two books with the publisher and not having a third contract, I've never stopped the habit of, of writing a thousand words a day. And after reading your book, I'm trying to push that word count, you know, higher day by day. I, um, I got to tell you something. Be, uh, so for me, if you're doing a thousand words a day, that's awesome. I, you know, I'll go 500, 700, like 1500 is the most I've successfully been writing in a day and still like at the quality that I want to do it. So, um, make sure you're, as you push up, right. Do quality, do quality control at the same time. Yeah. Um, you don't want to privilege kind of speed and length over quality control. You got you, well, they, they all, all I'm saying is make sure they evolve in lockstep. It'll save you, and I'm speaking personal experience here. Pain later. <laughs> oh, I, I remember the story about the book that you you wrote. Well, I'll, I'll have to ask you about that, the one you told in Zero to Dangerous. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I brought up that question about context is I've just been doing a lot of research on cults, um, almost all of which are personal development cults, and I just couldn't help but notice the pattern that I had mentioned to you over and over and over again. And I just, you know, I saw it happening, you know, you know, and sort of bigger celebrity type industries and places like Scientology. But I realized it was like, this is happening, you know, with our own peers, you know, they, in Scientology, they have this thing, apparently it's called the bridge and the bridge basically is all the curriculum you have to complete 
to get to the highest level of Scientology. And I was like, this just looks like a marketing funnel that most people who, you know, teach any of this stuff use. Yeah, I, to, I like I to me. I always I, I talk about it. You, you, I say two things. I say one. Um, foundationally, never trust the dopamine, right? Dopamine itself, like especially if you're in an experience where people are are are, are shifting your state and producing reward neurochemistry, um, and then trying to sell you anything or make meaning for you, yeah. that's the that's the warning sign to me. That's 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 when I run, don't walk. And I will say these days of the person who is doing those things and they're wearing a scarf. I sprint, don't run. <laughs> well, it's yeah, I remember this very distinctly. You talked about, you know, like a Tony Robbins seminar and how that's precisely what he does. I mean, this is what everybody does. They create these environments to produce a peak experience. And then at the end of it. There's an upsell. So, okay. okay, let me let me put it to you in a in a very extreme case. I've had over the past decade uh, a half dozen, uh, let's just say, very high level conversations uh, with members of the military globally. Actually, I've had these conversations globally with mili- well, very high ranking members of global militaries. What happens in a terrorist training camp is people are shifted into flow. And uh, then meaning is made for them. And flow is foundational addictive reward neurochemistry. And when you are trying to solve problems like terrorism or gang violence, another high flow initiatory state and experience um, where meaning is made for you, you are fighting addictive neurochemistry as much as you are fighting social cultural issues. And there's there's widespread agreement about this. I wrote a white paper that's been floating around the military for a while on this. There's why like people are in agreement, and nobody knows what to do about it. Um, but like this is not an unknown problem. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like to think that a terrorist training camp and a Tony Robbins seminar have something in common. Well, but remember when I say that we're that this work draws on foundational biological systems that are shaped by evolution and present in most mammals. All I'm saying is everybody can get into flow, including most mammals. Um, in fact, the old division, believe it or not, used to be ferrets. And they used to believe that most mammals that were kind of more socially advanced or had larger brains than ferrets could get into flow. And that was the line. Um, and we are now starting to suspect that's not true. The reason they thought the line was there is because ferrets didn't seem to be able to produce anandamide. And didn't have an endocannabinoid system, which is one of the neurochemicals that's implicated in flow. And we now know that basically the endocannabinoid system is ancient and it regulates the stress response in all mammals and functions as a second immune system in all mammals. So that division is gone. And so, you know, we're still talking about a system that evolved a very long time ago. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about, um, you know, one flow and, and sort of all the triggers. But there's something I want to talk about uh, that I think is really important here, and that's passion. You know, you say that passion is a potent driver, yet for all its upsides, passion can be a fairly selfish experience. Being all consumed means you're all consumed. There's not much room for other people. But if you're going to tackle the impossible sooner or later, you're going to need some outside assistance. Thus, at this point in the process, it's time to transform the fire of passion into the rocket fuel of purpose. And the reason that, you know, uh, I wanted to, to, you know, particularly ask you about that part is because, you know, commencement speeches, self-help books, like, you know, basically perpetuate the message of following your passion. And for most people, I mean, you may remember Cal Newport's book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. This is actually bad advice. Like it doesn't lead to fulfillment. It leads to poverty and, uh, you know, often as a road to nowhere. So one, you know, 
when you hear that, like where, where do people get the miss the boat when it comes to passion? Because I think they take it quite literally when they hear like Oprah get on stage in a commencement speech say saying following your passion. So I like to start by demystifying some stuff and making stuff really basic and simple, okay? Why does so there are five big intrinsic motivators: curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. The hell do they give you? What, what motivation scientifically is defined as the energy for action. Now, that energy in any situation is spent on two different things. Spent on the action, the thing you're doing. And if you're writing a book, you're, that action is the same. You've got to write the goddamn book. If you're bowling, you got to go bowling. So there's not, and those are skills that you acquire gradually over time. So if you're interested in quickly leveling up your performance, you, well, you have to master skills and that matters. That's a long, slow process as we all know. So the other half of the equation is on attention. Attention is a huge drain of resources, right? Your brain uses 25% of your energy at rest. It's 2% of your body mass. So attention is a big deal. Why does curiosity matter? Why does passion matter? Why does, uh, uh, God, um, Purpose matter? <laughs> I lost a word there, man. I'm sorry. I had a senior moment or something. Um, what is purpose matter? Um, it's because all those things give us focus for free. You're curious about something, you pay attention to it, right? Boom, focus for free. You don't have to work so hard. If you're passionate about it, you pay even more attention to it. Focus for free. If it's purpose, um, so i got to back up and tell you one other thing. When you're talking about neurobiological systems, Curiosity is a little bit of the neurochemical norepinephrine and a little bit of dopamine. Passion, way more neurochemical and dopamine. Purpose, you get all that neurochemical or all that norepinephrine and dopamine, and you also start getting pro-social chemicals that show up when other people are involved, right? So you get endorphins and oxytocin and uh, serotonin. Those are just more bigger reward chemicals. In other words, more drugs in the body. So we're not talking about anything that's really high-minded or mystical. You're literally talking about bigger hits of foundational reward chemistry that amplify motivation and focus and do a bunch of other performance enhancing stuff. So that's the right, that's the big deal. That's what you're talking about. There's nothing yeah. sort of mystical going on i'm not saying by the way there isn't high-minded and ethical and like purpose has like real value in the world you know what i mean that's totally apart from the neurobiology but from a neurobiological peak performance perspective is a very selfish thing to have that's so that's just like plate the first place to start i think you're asking again you're asking second level second order questions right like where does passion (laughs) get derailed um I think the reason a lot of passion gets, so you'll notice in the, in, in the, in the book, there's an, there's an order to the sequence, right? Meaning curiosity mm-hmm. is literally designed to be built into passion. Passion is designed to be turned into purpose. Purpose, once an organism has purpose, it wants autonomy, the freedom to pursue that purpose. Once it has that autonomy, it wants mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose well. Following that, there are, levels of goal setting, which give the whole organism direction, right? That you need to get into place. And then the next thing that gets trained up is grit. So one of the reasons I think this gets derailed for people is passion 
is very, it's fun. There's a lot of reward neurochemistry and all of those intrinsic motivators are flow triggers. So you can get all this stuff right. You get it all aligned and pointed in the same direction, start getting more flow in the equation. This is biologically exactly what's supposed to happen. Biologically, this is what's supposed to happen because flow is essentially, you know, you can't, you need the flow because you're going to need grit next, right? Because the motivation is going to run out. The fun is going to run out. You're going to start hitting problems, right? I have spent a long time studying entrepreneurship and most startups that are not funded, well-funded, tend to come apart at what I call the fourth problem, right? They start, people start a company, first problem shows up and they're like, oh, wow, we, everything was going great. And oh, this is a real, let's solve this. I mean, everybody leans in and it's fun and they solve it and it was hard. And then the second problem crops up and this one is a little like, oh, wow. Okay. Here's another one. I, I guess I'm not, it's all, not all dopamine high goal setting, what we're going to do. It's problem solving. Okay. This is real. And they lean in on that one. The third problem comes up and they come to the realization that is true in any company, which is, wait a minute, running a company is not about setting these lofty goals. It's about solving all the problems that stand between me and my lofty goals until mm-hmm. I get the system right. And the third one is when reality shows up. And the fourth problem is when they're like, oh my God, I don't have the fucking energy for this. This yeah. is endless. And it's where most startups start to get derailed. You usually lose two or three key players right there. Um, mm. And you either do it for financial reasons. Uh, this company isn't producing enough money fast enough for me because we keep these problems keep happening or mostly for emotional reasons. It's demotivating. And if you have not trained up the proper grit skills, you can't get to the next step. The problem is that in today's world, and you, this is, so again, we're going back to, we're all answering, you asked a great question, which is early on, which is why are there conference junkies and workshop junkies and they fucking can't get anywhere, right? Like what is going on with that, right? It's sort of the same answer to why does passion get derailed? People think that just because they're, you're deeply passionate about it, it's always going to feel good and it doesn't. And if you haven't properly trained up grit and it's not all your intrinsic motivators aren't aligned and it's not producing flow on a regular basis, you will burn out, right? You're, you're demotivated and you've got a recipe for burnout. And that's often what happens. And, um, and, but mostly workshop junkies, what do you get at these workshops? You get more dopamine and you get more social reward chemistry. So you are getting the same thing you would actually be getting from passion and purpose through an external thing. And that's another part of the problem, right? If you're, if you're, if your body is craving these reward chemicals and that craving is part of performance and you're finding an artificial way to satisfy them rather than doing the work, you have another, you have another issue. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you basically say long haul creativity is a mystery piled atop a mystery. Creative careers are slippery, one hit wonders are abound, but few are enduring superstars. A creative career isn't about climbing the mountain. It's about always climbing the mountain. And this level of commitment requires not just an originality, but rather the ultimate expression of originality, the consistent reinvention of self. And I think that that, you know, struck me because, you know, I think that William had a really good point. I mean, for every person who starts a blog, how many actually end up becoming published authors? If I remember correctly, 
just from talking so, to your editors. That's like a one in 5,000. Yeah. So this is actually, so long haul creativity, the very first thing that I talk about there is um, a lesson learned from my, one of my first mentors um, who I studied in undergraduate school was John Barth, who was, is the godfather of, of metafiction. So everything that is Thomas Pynchon, David Foster Wallace, all that whole side of literature started with John Barth. And um, he taught me basically, he did the most experimental wild shit ever. And yet he was incredibly successful. Like he managed to somehow bridge that gap, right? He, it changed the way language sound, book sound. The only people who had done that kind of stuff before him was James Joyce, um, in a sense. And so it was really radical in what he was doing and and how he was thinking about it. And he managed to have a very long career. And one of the things he told me is you can never have too many arrows in your quiver. And what he meant was you had to surround your craft. It wasn't excellence in what it wasn't. If you wanted to be a writer, it didn't mean you just had to be great at writing. You had to be great, first of all, at writing every kind of style imaginable, advertising copy, marketing copy, speeches, grant writing, books, everything. You had to get good at everything because over a long career, you're going to need how to do everything. And then you're going to have to figure out what are the actual industries that you're also in. Every writer today is also in the marketing and PR industry. They're in the, how do I talk on television? How do I sound good on radio? How do I talk on podcasts? Get super media trained industry. They're in the, right, on and on and on and on. And the people who actually have real careers, long careers um, in creativity, what Duran is talking about is one, they not only manage to reinvent themselves, two, (laughs) understand that, being doing their job, doing the creative thing that they're best at in the world is only a tiny percentage of the job. And if you do what a lot of artists do when they start to find out that the, the job also involves, you know, all this other shit that nobody yeah. wanted to do in the first place, they bail um, or they get bad managers like the, or they put too many people between them and the money. Right. Mm. Managers, agents, all that. Right. All that stuff. And they right. Blah, blah, blah. And they, and they fail to remember one fundamental lesson also here that I think is worth saying out loud on this podcast, which is every single industry in the world that has been built on the backs of creatives and or entertainers and or athletes is a business that was designed to exploit the talent (laughs) flat out. Right. I mean, trust me, by the way, um, there's you where I, this is another thing you, you, you were part of flow for writers also, I believe. Yeah. And one of the things I tell people is you got to remember as a creative, you are always somebody's bitch. Yep. I remember like you specifically every level, telling me that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and right. Like, and, and don't kid yourself. It doesn't matter how big a name you are. There are only a handful of people in the world. I mean, under a hundred, 200 who have the muscle to like, get a publisher to admit they did something wrong, for example, mm-hmm. right? Like literally that, so I like one, my pub, I've got publishers over me. I've got like, you know, all my publishing houses Two, once you have an audience, they have needs and demands and desires and wants. And, you know, they take things really personally. I'll give you a simple example. COVID is killing publishing right now. So the Art of Boswell is on 10 bestseller lists. We pre-sold 
enormous numbers of copies because my fans are phenomenal and they love me. And COVID, the printer printing is broken. Two different printers went out of business. Every publisher in the world is now relying on two or three printers. And all of them are doing things like, um, you know, canceling print runs or delaying print runs without telling anybody because there's nothing that can be done. So I have customers who pre-ordered a book in November who will not get it for another month. Wow. And um, there is nothing I can do in my power, as far as I can tell, to change those facts. I mean, like, we have taken extraordinary measure after extraordinary measure after extraordinary measure kind of thing. And, like, I have an audience that is really mad at me. Where the hell are my books? And I had to write an apology where I was like, look, I don't know to tell you, my brother doesn't have his books, right? Like major influencers who could really help me move the needle. They don't have their books. This is like, you know, I've got fans who are mad at me and the, I work for the publisher and they can't yeah. fix it. So you know what I mean? Like you totally. just have to understand that stuff too, because it conflicts with the amount to be a creative. Your ego has to get enormous. Right, you have to make choices on a daily basis where there's no right answer, um, and you know you have to do it for all sort of all the marbles in that moment by moment basis. Right, like creative decisions are hard. How do you know if you're making the right ones? How are you telling you know these kind all that stuff? I always say that one of the things that kills most creatives over time is that the experience of writing a book, as you know, is my book is wrong. Every single motherfucking day I come to it, besides the first day I start writing it and the day that I send it to my publisher and say, okay, it's fucking done. I can't look at it again, right? <laughs> Every other experience is I come to the book, I read what I wrote the day before, and it's not as brilliant as when I first wrote it or the problems I was having the day before are only magnified now and worse, right? Like yep. that's the experience. It's an experience of abject failure every time you encounter your material and you make decisions that you hope when you come back to it the next day, don't produce more abject failure, right? Like that's what you're doing. That's the encounter. So I talk about like, you know, I, I laugh when, you know, entrepreneurs say, Oh, I have to get used to failure. Yeah. You think you haven't seen anything. Try being a creative. Um, yeah. And right. This is, this is everybody's experience. And it's also everybody's experience that after the book comes out, most of the time when you go through it, all you see are the errors, right? Mm -hmm. I can, I've written 11, 12, 13 books, um, yeah. and there are two of them, three of them maybe, that I can read <laughs> without yeah. really wanting Cringy. to hurt myself. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that about old interviews. I mean, I, I remember even one of my books went to print with a typo and I only recognized it because I was in the studio reading the audio book and, you know, I stumbled and I'm like, wait a minute, this is a typo. I'm like, so you, shit, you, this you, is already gone to print. You think, you think that's bad? My first novel came out. My brother sent me a copy two weeks later with uh, the angriest note I'd ever seen that said, what, didn't you goddamn read this thing? There are 463 typos in this manuscript. I've highlighted all of them. Please fix. <laughs> 463 wow. typos. Now it was a long book. But yeah. it was like 463 pages, meaning they got something wrong once a page. My printer got something. These were not, I didn't make errors. These are literal typos in the text, spacing errors and grammar. Like the copy editor and the printer made 400, they made an error page in my, the first edition of my first book. So I feel your pain. Yeah. 
Well, let's do this. I mean, in the interest of time, I know we've gone for almost about an hour talking about all this other stuff, but I know that, you know, you uh, really go into very tactical stuff, you know, basically, I think triggers we've talked about before, and those seem yeah. pretty obvious with like concentration being at the top of the list. But I think the four stages of the flow cycle, um, I know this because I've been to your seminar, uh, but I think that that would be really beneficial for people to hear. Like how, Fantastic. basically, I think that everybody wants to know how the hell they actually get into flow. So let's, 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 let me back that question up um, and start someplace different and tell people a little bit about what the art of impossible is about what it does and how it ends up in flow. And then I will walk into that because it makes, it, there's just five more minutes that'll make way more sense or three more minutes, Perfect. which is this. Turns out from a biological level, there's only a, there's a limited set. If you're interested in peak performance from a cognitive standpoint, I'm talking about physical skills, but from a cognitive standpoint, there is a set of tools. There are motivation tools there are learning tools, there are creativity tools, and there are flow tools. Each of those words, by the way, is a catch-all. Psychologists say motivation. They mean extrinsic motivation, intrinsic motivation, goal setting, and grit. Learning is a subset for a whole bunch of knowledge acquisition, skills acquisition. How do you, you know, blah, 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 blah. Creativity, as we talked about, there's a bunch of creative stuff. And flow, there's a bunch of flow stuff. The way to think about this quartet of skills from a peak performance perspective is motivation gets you into the game. Learning keeps you there and allows you to continue to play creativity, especially if you're going after hard, challenging, impossible. I don't know how to get their goals. Creativity is how you steer. And then flow is how you turbo boost all of this stuff sort of beyond all reasonable expectations in all honesty. So that's the sequence. So when we've been, we started about talking about motivation and those kinds of things covered that. We sort of skipped over learning, but there's a bunch of learning stuff in the book as well. Finally, there's a bunch of creativity stuff, and it ends with flow. And if you're interested in more flow in your life, as you pointed out, there's two sets of things you want to know. You want to know how does the experience work because it's not doesn't work like a light switch. You're not in the zone or out of the zone. It's a four stage process. You got to know where you are in the so called flow cycle. These four stages, so you can go where to go next. So you can get more flow in your life. And finally, you need to know the flow triggers, which are the preconditions that lead to more flow. And those are applied, best applied. Different triggers work best at different points in the cycle. So you put it all together, you have the full cognitive peak performance suite. This is how our biology was designed to work. This is everything we mean when we talk about peak performance. And by the time you get to the end of the book, right, post-flow, yes, there's a bunch of onboarding processes and there's some stuff to do along the way um, and a lot of practical tactical. In the end, it's six things to do every day and seven things to do every week. And some of those six things take, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes to cover the other ones fit inside other stuff you're probably already doing, that sort of thing. So the point is, in the end of this, you're really interested in going after higher goals in your life, follow the biology, and you get farther, faster with far less fuss, if you pardon the alliteration. In the middle of this is the flow cycle, right? The four-stage process that is flow that you asked about. And yeah, knowing about it is super useful because you can't live in a flow state, um, <laughs> right? And uh, because you can't live in a flow state, you have to go through these four stages if you want more flow. And some of them are decidedly unflowy. First stage in the flow cycle is known as struggle. This is a loading phase. You are loading and overloading the brain with information. And our inner experience of this process is literally frustration. 
So in peak performance, frustration is a sign that you're going in the right direction, not the wrong direction often, right? And that's very sort of difficult to know. This is, uh, this is you're trying to learn how to do stuff, right? This could be everything from like, I'm out skiing right now. I'm working on my nose butter three. So I'm trying to remember to lean over the nose of my skis as I start to go into my 360. I'm trying to get used to launching off jumps, you know, backwards in the air and not exactly being able to see, right? These are all the skills that I'm trying to onboard on the way. Sooner or later, they're going to snap together into a nose butter 360. For writing, this could be when I'm interviewing tons of people and doing research and figuring out how to structure a book. Either way, right, I'm often frustrated. And most people, when they're frustrated along the way with skill acquisition or knowledge acquisition, think I'm going in the wrong direction. You're actually going in the right direction. Next stage in the process, once you're super frustrated, take your mind off the damn problem. The reason is we have to automatize those skills, Flow takes place when sort of the brain has the perfect action plan and can execute those actions automatically without conscious involvement. For this to happen, you literally got to stop thinking about the shit you're trying to learn because it is too difficult. The conscious mind is too limited. And so what works here is long walks in nature, low-grade physical exercise, a bunch of stuff there. This is often followed by the flow state itself, which is the third stage in the cycle. Um, and that is often followed by a recovery period on the back end. I want to go back to the release thing. Sometimes releases take your mind off the problem, like go for a long walk in nature. Other times, if you're sort of like in an activity, like I'm skiing and I want to get into flow and I'm trying to learn new stuff and it won't work and it won't work, won't work. I'm pushing too hard. Then I just want to back off and go ski something really mellow and try to like be creative and innovative there. Um, I'm pushing too hard and I want to change the terrain or if I'm writing and I'm really stuck, right? And I'm pushing too hard. I'm trying to do something really difficult. I'll back off and I'll say, okay, just fix this one sentence, one sentence at a time. In fact, get the first four words. That's your only goal for right now. And you have an hour to do it. Go ahead. Right. Kind of thing where I'll really back off the challenge um, with the same goal. So does that make any sense? Does that help? That makes complete sense. So, um, yeah, we've talked about the triggers before. I think those are really obvious. I mean, anybody who's heard Cal Newport or heard you on our show knows that focus is like this critical part of it. But um, in the interest of time, I want to finish with two questions. Uh, you know, I mean, part of what, what's so fascinating to me about your work is the caliber of the people that you profile. I mean, you talk about Peter Diamandis, who I know you've co-written books with. Um, and the reason this has come up, and I've asked a handful of people this question, uh, but we had Justine Musk here. Um, you know, talking about the psychology of visionaries and what it actually takes to accomplish at, you know, sort of an Elon level. And I think the thing that stayed with me always from that conversation was she said, I don't want to get all deterministic, but I don't think that this is something like, you know, the level of like an Elon, you know, intelligence and, and drive is something that can be learned. And I wonder based on your research, like what you would say about that, because, um, you know, like I'm pretty clear on the fact that, you know, no matter how much I practice, if I went and did LeBron's training regiment to the letter, he yeah, probably so kicked the I, shit I, out of me in a I, game of one-on-one. Yeah, I mean, I, so there's an argument about this in the world at a really deep, important, interesting level, right? It's talent <clears throat> versus skill or growth mindset versus fixed mindset or genetics, nature versus nurture, whatever, take your pick. And I tend to believe, and I could be wrong, but I 
and I, this is more opinion than fact at this point because it's an open, ongoing debate. I ha- I believe if you get a perfect match fit. Now, this is a term out of economics. I talk about it a lot in the book. This was talked a lot of, a lot by David Epstein in his book mm-hmm. Range. If you get a perfect match fit, that is a match between who you are, your personality, your upbringing, your culture, all that stuff, your values, your goals, your skills, your strengths, and then you apply the tools of big performance, you can be world-class. I think that is true. Um, I do not think you exactly get to pick where you go. You know what I mean? I weigh Mm -hmm. 160 pounds. And I can ski or mountain bike at a world-class level, but I am never going to play in the NFL. I weigh 160 (laughs) pounds, right? Like it is just never going to happen. Or I'll give you another example. I, um, I'm dying. Like I don't, my, when I do math of any kind, it is slow and I have to think a lot about it. And I basically have to turn math into language and then I have to turn it into language that I understand. And then I can do language at a really high, fast level, right? When I'm around people whose brain can do math the way I can do language, I'm like, wow, that looks like freaking magic. Now, I know I can learn the magic trick with 10 years practice. That I know. Will I ever be able to do it quite like them? Possibly no, because it's a second language. And my first language is, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and well, I, I mean... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. But I, you know, I, I don't know, man. I like, I, again, I don't think I'm an example of anything, but I have world class skills, meaning top 5%, top 1%, in seven or eight or nine different disciplines. And I was not an extraordinary anything when I started. Remember where this mm-hmm. conversation started that my sixth grade teacher told me I wouldn't live to see 30? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, by yeah. the way, like, I, you know, that's the other thing that I saw the action adventure sport athletes, right? That was what caught my attention in action sports was not that these guys were doing the impossible. That was cool and unbelievable and demanded explanation. It was that they had come from broken homes and bad childhoods. They had very little money. They had very little education. There was a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, and a lot of risk taking. And normally when you put that yeah. shit together in a community, you get jail or death, you know? You don't get the reinvention of human performance over and over again. And that's what you were getting. So it caught my attention. And it turns out, I don't think that's all that rare. I think that's far more common than people notice. Um, So I, you know, I, I, what I think, honestly, is when I hear somebody raise the genetics question, personally, I think you're making excuses for yourself Um, Mm -hmm. or you haven't found, or you haven't found don't have good match fit. That's yeah. what I, that's how I think about it. Um, well, I appreciate everybody's the got the, everybody's got those excuses. You know what I mean? It's hard here, period in life on the planet earth. It's hard here. It's hard for everyone. Um, and it was hard for Elon. Jesus, the dude's demons are big. Yeah. Big. I mean, you know, and that's, you know, not uncommon anywhere, anywhere you see. So like, yeah, I like I've met I, I've met Elon and you know I wrote a book about his work and you know he's very close to Peter and Peter's um sort of in my world a little bit and uh 
his brain does some amazing, amazing, amazing stuff, but there's a lot of other stuff he can't do it all that a lot of other people can do. So I think everybody's brain can do amazing stuff. You get a point in this in the right direction. I don't know. I could be totally wrong um, about this, but that's this is how I believe. And what I really believe is this. If you're willing to believe the same thing, your life is going to improve. It may not be true, but what we know about the neurobiology says if you're willing to believe the same thing, right? it's got a much greater chance of becoming true. Like you've got no shot if you don't believe it. Well, I appreciate the match quality thing so much because, you know, much like yourself, I'm an Indian person who sucks at math. So imagine, you know, like failing to live up to a cultural stereotype. And I remember um, I learned that in computer science. And I remember very distinctly, I was like, right after I graduated from business school, my dad's like, oh, not everybody can be Steve Jobs. And I thought, oh, man, I'm like, that's pessimistic. You don't believe in me. But I realized that was rational optimism at work. I'm like, you don't want a guy who sucks at math writing code or building hardware. It's true. I agree with that. But that doesn't mean you wouldn't be an invaluable asset to companies that did either, right? With your facility, with language. And I, you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, like, yes, I hear you. Right. And I, like, I come from a, my father, as, as I said, like my, we, my father's first guy in this family to go to college. His parents are Russian immigrants who came over to escape the Holocaust and, um, got here. My grandfather was a, owned a fish market on the South side of Chicago, um, which was a really weird place for a, you know, a Russian Jew to own a fish market. I will tell you that. And, uh, um, my father and his brothers were natural born athletes and they all had tryouts for the Cubs. And my grandmother told my father, said, you can't, you're not going, you're not playing baseball. You're the first guy in the family to go to college. You're going to college. Like we're like, we're going to figure it out. And he did. And, but I grew up in a family where like you had to be a baseball player, right? And if you weren't a baseball player, you had to be a businessman. And instead, my father got a, like a delinquent, creative action sport athlete, right? <laughs> with, a, with a deep passion for science. Like he wanted a businessman. He became an accountant because he thought it was the safest thing in the world. He gave up his baseball career and became an accountant. He wanted a son who liked baseball and like, you know, standard like actuarial tables kind of shit. And yeah. he got me. And let's just say that, like, I, you know, I spent most of my childhood not being the athlete, you know, that I was supposed to be um, at all and wanting, you know, you know what I mean? So, like, it's a weird one that the genetics don't always, always pan out even when they're there for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could easily talk for two hours about that, um, but I know you have to get going. So I want to finish with my final question, uh, which I know I've asked you before. and. That is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? To do a dangerous thing with style is what I call art, said Bukowski. And I, I'm not 100% certain that's not what we mean by unmistakable. Could be wrong, but I don't know. I'm going to start. I'll stop there. Because I've never given that answer. I've never given that answer before, right? I've been on your show before. I don't think I've answered the question that way before. But I think that's true in, like, what I mean by that is all great art or sport 
or those kinds of things that we would talk about as unmistakable creativity, innovation, all that stuff, wherever it is, business or, or writing or art or sport. Um, we're looking at somebody who is risking a great deal, even if you, you're not even noticing. And I was, I'll give you an example from writing that I think about a lot. Um, cause this is, uh, I learned how to do a particularly hard thing from Joan Didion. Joan Didion, um, writes about like really difficult emotional stuff. And she does it with no emotion because she knows that all emotional language gets flowery and it tends to sort of screw that up. So instead she sort of just tells the truth as it is. So she basically like tells you in the middle of like the white album very casually that like, I want you to know what you're getting. You're getting a woman in the middle of a nervous breakdown. So never mind the fact that I'm super freaking famous and on all these, you know, award committees, I'm having a nervous breakdown and that's what's going on. And she does it like that. And you trust her despite the fact that she just told you she's an unreliable narrator in the middle of a nervous breakdown. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, like it's, it's, it's an amazing trick and it's a way of, of doing like, but she's risking a great deal. Because it's in the first paragraph of, of the White Album, and which was like her second or third major. It mattered. The book mattered a lot. And she's literally telling you that like, hey, your heroine is losing her shit and check it out. Right. And that's where we start the book. And it's a big risk from an authorial perspective, from a career perspective, from all the people who are going to read that perspective in real. In the, right. So even if you don't notice it, to do a dangerous thing with style, which is exactly what Didion does with all that stuff. That's, you know, I, when Bukowski says it's, uh, that's what I call art, I, I don't know if that's what I call art, but that's definitely what makes something unmistakable. Mm. Amazing. Um, well, I feel like I could talk to you for hours on end, man. Uh, this has been absolutely incredible. Uh, where can people, even though I know apparently they're not even, you know, able to get it right now. But oh, no, they can. can. They can. Okay. okay. Cause it's even worse than I made it out to be. The reason nobody can get the goddamn book is because there was some crazy error at the printer also. And all the books went to Amazon and Amazon will not let them go. So, um, everybody who wants to get a copy of the art impossible, Please go to Amazon because there's a lot of books there. You can't get them anyplace else, but Amazon's got you sorted. Um, and uh, stephencotler.com is me. Uh, if you want to know more about the book, uh, artofimpossible.com is, is, is the book, theartofimpossible.com. And uh, if you're interested in, in anything flow or flow trainings, flowresearchcollective.com will get you that stuff. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.